0: BLOB TALK RADIO You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history, True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zufansky. Good evening. In 2016-2017, while working for the USA Today Network's Wisconsin investigative team, Author John Ferrick wrote dozens of articles examining the murder case against Stephen Avery, who had already beat one wrongful conviction only to be charged with the murder of Teresa Halbach in 2005. The case became the wildly successful Netflix Making a Murderer documentary. In Wrecking Crew, Demolishing the Case Against Stephen Avery, Ferrick lays out in exacting detail the post conviction strategy of Kathleen Zellner, the high profile, high octane lawyer, to free Avery. To write this book, Zellner, perhaps America's most successful wrongful conviction attorney, gave Farrick unique access to the exhaustive pro bono efforts she and her small suburban Chicago law firm dedicated for a man she believes to be a victim of an unscrupulous ju- justice system in Manitowoc County. The book that we're featuring this evening is Wrecking Crew, Demolishing the Case Against Stephen Avery, with my special guest, journalist and author John Ferrick. Welcome back to the program and thank you very much for agreeing to this interview, John Ferrick.
1: Thanks for having me on again, Dan.
0: Thank you very much, John, for this incredible. Congratulations on this book. Um, You've got yourself involved with one of the most fascinating cases in American history. Let's talk about, just briefly, how how you came to be in a position to be able to speak with uh, Kathleen Zellner. We we just spoke about this unique access. Tell us how you came to be involved with this. Uh, We talked about the investigative um, team that you were involved with. Tell us how you came to be involved with writing Wrecking Crew.
1: The Mickey Murder came out, as people may remember, it was uh, late December two thousand fifteen and it really took the world uh by storm. I was in a position on that investigative team where uh I had a really uh um tenacious uh hard nosed uh editor, uh Joel Christopher, who had some familiarity with the uh with the original trial of Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey. And Joel was a real bulldog and really wanted me to uh to basically uh independently do whatever investigative uh, reporting that I needed to do to really try to investigate some of the key facts of the uh, the case, the Teresa Halbach murder case, involving uh, Stephen Avery especially. And, uh, and it was shortly thereafter, I think it was just within a couple weeks of uh, making a murder coming out, Dan, that uh, Kathleen Zellner announced uh, um, to the media, announced to the world for that matter that she was going to take on Steve Avery's case. Coming from Illinois, being born in Illinois, and uh, having a brother who's a lawyer here in Illinois, I had some familiarity with the name Kathleen Zellner. She had been involved and made a name for herself around uh, Chicagoland, uh, championing uh, justice for people that had been wrongfully convicted. And, uh, and there was one case in particular, the Kevin Fox case, which is not that far from uh, from where I grew up in uh Joliet, Illinois. That was already familiar familiar to me and my family, so I had some knowledge of of who Kathleen Zellner was, when pretty much everybody else around the world didn't know who Kathleen Zellner was, except that she had come forward and was going to take on uh, this case and and this crusade, this uh, quest uh, on Stephen Avery's behalf. And uh, and so uh, so from that point forward, I really uh, t- tried to do as many stories as I could to try to chronicle. Followed Eleanor as far as just what uh, you know, what avenues what she was exploring with her uh, with her defense work, and it took me several weeks if not months to uh, to eventually uh, you know be able to have a phone interview with her and uh, speak with her and uh, let her know that uh, that I was really looking at this case independently, Dan, and not from a jaded uh, point of view or uh, but as somebody that really wasn't there, I wasn't in. Wisconsin at the actual time of the uh, Teresa Halbuck murder, that tragedy. And uh, so I, I didn't cover Stephen Avery's trial, and I didn't cover Brendan Dassey's trial, but I also felt that being from the outside, c- coming into the case uh, fresh, that gave me an opportunity to look at the case fresh, just like Zellner was doing.
0: And she's from Chicago as well, so she had that same perspective or that, that the advantage of being an outsider as well, looking at it with fresh eyes. You mention in the book, too, something, I mean, very unusual and very, wow. Tell us about um, Kathleen Zellner's experience with a serial killer and what she did, which is so untypical as an attorney.
1: The uh, That was one of her first first cases that, that dealt with the criminal justice system um she had made lots of money and had worked uh kind of her bread and butter was was the medical medical malpractice industry and uh and did really well for herself in that industry but uh she got involved in uh at the um request of an appointment uh, from one of those uh uh groups that gets funding uh they they uh, they got her involved in uh, a serial killer uh, um, named Larry Eiler. And uh, and she was appointed Larry Eiler's uh, counsel. And she realized, Dan, as she was digging into the case, that he had only been convicted, I believe, of one murder at that point right. in time but was suspected of being involved in uh, many, many more, uh, at least 15 more than that. Uh, I think it was even higher than that. But, uh, but anyway, um, so she was kind of in that, in that quandary, quandary where she's thinking to herself, you know, she was uncovering a lot of information, a lot of evidence that she thought uh, was uh, um, helpful you know um on his behalf as far as in the appeal process but it, you know, from an ethical standpoint uh you know from an um, you know trying to trying to do the uh um the right thing she wanted to try to figure out how to make the best of the situation and that would be to um, find a way to help the police and, and close a lot of these cases that had never been that Eiler had never been prosecuted for um all these they were still unsolved murders on the book, so to speak. And uh, she eventually, you know, convinced him, got him to confess to her um, he was dying. Um, and um, she got him to confess to her all these other crimes. In great detail, too, just to make sure that it was legitimate confession, but she was able to get him to confess uh, all these other crimes, and, uh, and in order to help the police and get those cases uh, um, closed and bring closure to those families. And I think that's really that's really something else. That's something that you you don't expect and you don't envision a criminal defense attorney normally doing. But Kathleen Zellner is not your normal, you know you know, prototypical criminal defense attorney. Um, But she also had a revelation as a result of that experience, you know, or maybe an epiphany for that matter. But she realized that she did not want from that point forward to be representing people that were so-called guilty, you know, guilty suspects, guilty murderers, like Larry Eiler was. She knew he was a killer. He was a serial killer. She learned that, and, uh, and she decided that she did not want to do that. Type of criminal defense work from that point forward in her career.
0: Right. Now, in this, she had also, from that point, exonerated, became a famous exoneration lawyer. At once, uh, one time, Steve Avery found out about her through his then girlfriend. She was. He was. Uh, she was then contacted by her unsuccessfully. A few years later. Zellner got in contact with the girlfriend and then, hence, went to see Stephen Avery. Now, involved in this case, and just like you involved in this, that you say in an independent investigation, um, tell us about some of the things you found out about Teresa Halbach that nobody knew about at the time and rightfully should have been investigated and taken into consideration, as you do in the beginning of Wrecking Crew.
1: It's one of those things that that you know, Dan, and I think probably a lot of others that uh, that have devoted you know many years of their lives to investigating true crime, especially homicide detectives, know this. One of the proper ways to do an investigation is you start at the beginning, and you do what's known as victimology. Um, Oftentimes, victimology leads you in the right direction as far as uh, you know to answer the question of motive and 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 why somebody um, became a victim of a crime. And in uh, the, the Teresa Halbach murder, there really wasn't any of that, regardless of whether or not people believe Steve Avery or, and, and or Brendan Das who were involved in the, the case. The fact is that there really was no effort, there was no investigative effort at the time of the crime to really, inv- to really do a lot of what I would consider, you know, homicide investigation 101, and that is, you know, study the victim, learn the victim's, you know, habits, traits, uh, mannerisms, and patterns of life. And uh, and and so because of that, uh, a lot of people, there were a lot of people that were in Teresa Halbach's life, and and she also was involved in what we would consider a lot of risky behaviors as well. Um, there was a number of individuals that, that she was involved with uh, romantically. Um, there was uh, um, she got involved in a and she wasn't. Um, I don't know how to say this, but uh, she got involved in a court case involving another couple that were married that were going through a divorce, and she had taken nude uh, nude photographs of them um, at her uh, at her photo studio, and uh, and in the middle of this messy divorce. Teresa Hallbike got pulled into this case um regarding these photographs and uh again around the time that she disappeared on Halloween of two thousand five, one of the first things that the police did was uh, you know, go through her house and uh and, and they recovered they recovered or confiscated uh, you know, these photographs uh that were uh you know, that were in her in her bedroom, these uh these negative photographs. So um, there was just, uh, again, a lot of that information, for whatever reason, never came up and really was never uh, developed at the time of the uh, of the 2005 investigation, and certainly wasn't uh, brought up at the time of Stephen Avery's trial, for whatever reason.
0: Let's talk about one thing that comes up in the documentary, but also comes up in your book, but I think it's important to mention, and you do this in the investigation, that you wanted to find out the particulars of the work that she did. She worked for Auto Trader, but she also did independent work. And we talked about, you write about in the book that she was branching out into our, her own business where she would do nude photography. And so she was doing other things other than the Auto Trader assignments. And one of those was called hustle shots. Tell us what hustle shots were and what they entailed. Be important. Hustle latest.
1: shots uh, were a way. Uh to make some extra extra cash, so to speak, and it was it was money that uh, basically uh, that she, she would somebody would flag her down or contact her or track her down on on her cell phone, and uh, and then she would uh, um, you know use her creative you know skills uh, and do featurey photos, but it really was uh, um, you know could be anything and everything. I mean, usually it was related to the the photography uh, for for trader but again it was more of a sporadic uh, you know spur of the moment kind of on a whim type of assignment Dan and because of that that really would be hard for you know her employer her independent contractor auto trader for example to really kind of know what she was doing on a hour by hour basis and stuff like that and again she was an independent contractor. She was not a full-time employee of Auto Trader, so because of that, uh, she had a lot more liberty and freedom. And and again, some of those assignments with um, 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 the uh, the hustle shots sometimes could put her in a situation where, you know, somebody might proposition her, or some guy might try to, you know, invite or entice her to come inside their their cabin or their house or their trailer. You know, for for a couple of drinks, and you know, we kind of know where sometimes those things go and stuff like that. So again, it was a lot more uh, um, of a risky situation, you know, for her to be putting herself in, um, you know, in that in that rural area. And I know that the fellow that she worked with at the photography studio back in green bay tom pierce had some reservations and some skepticism you know about her you know doing a lot of the auto trader work and uh you know certainly that would include some of those hustle shots
0: let's fast forward to obviously people know that she was missing as of october 31st 2005 but let's go to november 3rd just a few days later in calumet county and uh a, a a gentleman named Kevin Ramlow Ramlo, and he lived nearby and uh, near Mishicot. So tell us what he sees and what he reports uh, at that time and what he notices regarding that Rav 4
1: Yeah and again this is something that never came up at all at the time right. of the original trial and uh, so it's completely foreign and again he had moved away from Wisconsin I, I think uh, you know within a couple of years so he and he really wasn't uh, you know a, um, a junkie as far as just somebody that was really interested in the case it was just something that he learned He he had always he had experienced and and realized years later you know what had occurred and and that basically was that uh, within you know within shortly after Teresa had disappeared her friends and and family members had uh, got together, and among other things is um, to try to get the word out, they made posters. Um, there were different posters that were uh, that were distributed but uh, but one of the posters uh, um, had a couple different pictures of Teresa on it, and on the bottom dan it had a photo of her uh, of her toyota rav four and um, and again. The, the friends and family were, were trying to put these in as many locations that made the most sense as far as people were going to see. And, and so gas stations and convenience stores were obvious logical places to stick these at. And so Ramlo just happened to be uh, um, visiting the Cenex, uh convenience store gas station um, later in that week. Uh, and um, he saw this poster, and it caught his eye because he – when he saw the the picture of the vehicle he realized that this was a vehicle that he had seen i would say stashed you know kind of you know parked in an abandoned area a remote area along the two lane state highway which was pretty much you know one of the main thoroughfares it's highway 147 kind of out in the rural um um rural Manitowoc county area there and uh and 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 so he sees this poster and and you know light bulb goes goes off in his head and 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 then there's another part of this story that's really fascinating uh, for people that are interested that that have familiarity with making a murder and some of the key players Ramlo, who had seen making a murder finally by this point in time uh, and i'm talking a year after the original making a murder came out had realized the face that he saw the deputy that he saw had, was one of the individuals that was a key person that he that uh that was you know well known to the world in in making a murder, and that was Andy Colburn so he he, he is unwavering I'm talking about Ramlow that he saw Andy Colburn at that gas station that day that he saw the poster and let him know, you know, know, well-intentioned in a a friendly type of tone, but just let him know that the vehicle that there's a poster for here happens to be um, a mile or so down the road, so to speak, uh, and he basically told Colburn, you know, where this vehicle was, Um, and, and as I know now, apparently this was sort of common knowledge back in the rural Manitowoc area around the time that this was going on, it just never came out at the time of the 2005 investigation. This this apparently was uh, never. There really were not any police reports, or very you know, it just it, it just seemed to disappear. Even though it was factual, and a lot of people had come forward in in the, in the county that uh, that thought they saw this uh this green or you know I'll just say turquoise, that's the way it's described, but this this turquoise uh um four.
0: You write that he saw this, he believes, um November third and fourth by the dam. So a couple days ago. I know it road. was over
1: a two or three day period, yeah. That's
0: yeah. correct. Mm-hmm. Now at the same time there's other information that is uncovered of course by the Zellner uh, investigative team and uh and while we're on this same still area that everybody will know know what we're aiming for basically, there is another person named Joshua Randit at um a a gravel pit owner. Well tell us more about Joshua Randit and what he says he experienced again. Tell us how the conditions or circumstances in which they, this team, found out about this, because this was not initially known either. I
1: was to say, yeah, Redant uh, um, is uh, Josh Redant. Uh, his family, for for generations, I would say, has has owned several of the gravel, the sand and gravel pits uh, that uh, that are uh, surrounding. They're basically behind the uh, the Avery. The, the Avery's 40-acre uh, salvage yard and uh, with Redant one of the key observations he had made uh, was that uh, that he he had seen um, on that Halloween so Monday uh, around the time frame that had disappeared but uh, later that afternoon he thought that he had saw you know some type of fire um, something uh, you know something off in the distance uh, Back at the Avery property, and uh, and he came forward as part of the Zellner investigation to to give an affidavit to explain to her that he felt that he was being pressured by the police uh, at the time that he gave his initial story to kind of change his story to to give the impression that uh, that the fire was really at uh, you know Stephen Avery's, and uh, and he felt that what he saw was was really probably. Um, a fire coming out of a burn barrel, and that was probably closer to Steve Avery's Drew's trailer and property, and that's commonly known as the, the Dassey property. Um, there was also information too um, that uh, that Redant had, uh, had 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 shared with Zellner that uh, that some of the state uh, Wisconsin Department of Justice investigators had spoken with him and confided in him. And basically left him with the impression that uh that Halbeck's vehicle, you know, was was found or had, had traveled or was in the general vicinity of his property and an area that's uh that's known as uh as Cuss Road. Um so again, some of these are are, are all revelations that really were not commonly known um or common knowledge at the time of the, uh, the original case. And uh, and one of the key points, too, is that uh, Josh Redant, again, was one of the first people to speak with the police after the RAV4 turned up on the far back edge of uh, Stephen Avery's property. Um, and and Josh Redant ultimately was never called by the prosecution at the time of the Steve Avery trial. And you see that with a lot of uh, witnesses that, for whatever reason, they had information, important information, but they never made it on the witness stand at the time of the trial.
0: Let's talk about the Dassey brothers. There's four, Brian, Bobby, Blaine, and Brendan, which was 16 and convicted, of course, everyone knows. Let's talk about what Zellner and, obviously, you had found as well, in terms of Bobby Dassey and the computer and the searches. Tell us how um, you introduce experts that of course the information in 2005 if it, were, if it were to be analyzed would not have the advantage of today's technology and these experts and utilizing that technology. Tell us what they found and via what method tell us what they found out about Bobby Dassey.
1: Well one thing that that, that was known um at the time of the original investigation was that shortly after uh, after um uh, Steve Avery's arrest, uh we're talking a couple months later, but uh but uh the the, the main computer of uh of his uh, nephew and uh and the other brothers, that was taken into custody by the police. Uh Zellner Years later, obviously, 2016, 2017, 2018 here, um, but she's been able to determine that uh, that there was all 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 types of, of, of really um, creepy, uh, disgusting, um, um, violent uh, pornography that involved uh, also mutilation, um, and, uh, and and there was just a lot of this uh, um, this this dark I would say dark web type of uh, uh, material. Um and and this all really pointed to, to Bobby Dassey. Uh he was the second oldest of, of the boys and he was also the one that uh that, that maintained that uh that he was pretty much sleeping all day and just happened to wake up right around the exact time frame that Teresa Holbeck rolled up uh, on Avery Road to uh to, to uh to take the photographs of, uh, of Bobby Dassey's mother's uh, red Van, the one that uh that uh, was being uh, advertised through Auto Trader. Um, so you had Bobby Dassey basically being the star witness for the prosecution for Mr Kratz and uh, ultimately taking the stand and telling the, the uh the jury that he saw Teresa Hallbuck walking toward Stephen Avery's uh trailer and uh maintain that he never saw her again. Um, but again you have a lot of these inconsistencies, um the, uh, the computer expert that Zellner was able to bring into the case, a uh, gentleman by the name of Gary Hunt, who was able to get access to this computer again over the last year or two, uh, 2017, 2018, I believe. And using today's modern technology was able to determine that there was a number of, uh, of Internet searches that were taking place on the day of the murder. Um, and basically Bobby Dassey was the only only person that was home at the time um, that these Internet searches were taking place on the um, on the web there. So, again, it's just one more key example as far as whether or not Bobby Dassey was being truthful at the time of the crime. There was also another affidavit that, uh, that came up, and I'm going off of memory here, Dan. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it was either... Yeah. The older brother, or it was his half brother, but uh, but but one of the Dasseys came forward and said that Bobby had told him, around the time of the crime, that Stephen Avery could not have committed the crime, that he saw her leave the property, and again, this was something that was never really followed up by uh, mm-hmm. by Stephen Avery's uh, criminal defense lawyers at the time of the trial. And again, this is something else that if they had uh, if they had put the other uh, dassey uh on the stand um there that would have under undermined bobby dassey's testimony and and would have shown that he he um was either either just outright lying or just giving a you know some type of statement that questioned and undermined his uh his credibility there
0: it's not only you go further and i'll what you write about in the book is that she had hired experts to psychologically analyze the kind of person would make these kinds of violent internet searches uh... keyword searches for dismemberment uh... women tortured uh... dismembered bodies like i'd mentioned so all of these things that work and were proven to be attributed to his searches and his searches only the, the images that they found on there, including files called Hullback and Teresa and DNA, and some questions about that, Uh, and and also the idea that you said that he was searching violent porn all morning, refuting the claim that he was sleeping until 2.30. Now, tell us what Zellner says in terms of the reason why Bobby was not questioned more so and why Brendan was chosen before we can get to the idea of, of more evidence against Bobby and also pointing towards Scott Tadich. Tell us what her idea was, the reason why Bobby was not looked at um, more closely and Brendan was. What was the reason for that, Zellner's estimation?
1: Well, I, I was going to say, I mean, along those lines, Dan, the uh I mean, one of the key points was that uh, that that Stephen Avery, the investigators, had, had pretty much locked in on him, you know, from, from the get go. Um he was really the only person that was uh that was seriously being investigated as a suspect. Uh the other thing too I remember was that uh that John Dietering, and I know this is in the early portions of the book, but uh but basically these investigators had really befriended uh Bobby and they really wanted him they were trying i would say trying to groom him you know to be a star witness a, a crucial witness against uh against his uncle and uh so they even made comments to him you know at various times that they don't think that he's involved that they can't see him you know being an accomplice or being involved in the crime um and uh and so so i think for 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 those reasons, you know, Bobby Dassey was was overlooked, you know, as 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 a suspect, but uh, but it, again, when you, when you look at some of the experts that uh, Kathleen Zellner has hired, you know, and brought into the case, um, studying this, you know, the you know these mutilations, you know these uh, um, you know these very sick and, and twisted uh, you know images that were that were on his computer, you know, the belief was that there's this this kind of fits the profile, you know, as uh, I think one of our experts, uh, Greg McCruria, pointed out as far as that, uh, I mean, some type of sexual sadistic type of, uh, you know, killer. Um, and, and, and there have been a number of these individuals throughout the country. And uh, and again, you know, in Zellner's mind, you know, Bobby Dasty fits that uh, type of, uh, you know, profile or persona. And some of our experts uh, agree and, and believe that's believe that's the case here the other thing too and and I don't know if this was something that you picked up on too Dan or not but uh, one thing that Zellner had also real zeroed in on was that Bobby Dassey basically was trying to trying to assure the police that hey you know I just happened to you know look out the window and I saw Teresa Hallbeck, you know but it really was nothing and then I went inside and I took a shower and her vehicle uh, was still there and then uh, I left and uh, went uh, went hunting but uh, but, she, but Bobby Dassey was also able to provide very, very detail about the clothing that she was wearing at the time of the crime, at the time of, I should say, at the time of her disappearance. And Zeller also picked up on that and realized that, you know, these are things that, uh, again, only a killer or, or, you know, prime suspect would seem to pay attention to and really zero in on and stuff like that, rather than just somebody that... Uh, Again, nonchalantly, just happened to look out the window for a half a second or two seconds. Um, so again, this this idea that Bobby was standing at the window, you know, to Zellner basically solidifies her belief that he was stalking her, Dan, and uh, you know, really, you know, he had been watching her and uh, observing her over the number of several times. I think at least a half a dozen times that she had been on the uh, on the property. And I know there were some comments uh, that, that have been put forth in the post-conviction motions by Zellner, um, even suggesting that Bobby was the one that was really, you know, had kind of fallen in love or, you know, was, um, was really seemed to be wrapped up or, or hung up on, you know, obsessing and paying attention to Teresa Halbach whenever she would show up, you know, at the Avery property to do her regular, uh, you know, photographs for Auto Trader.
0: Absolutely. We're going to talk more, but we're going to stop for a break to talk about Blue Apron. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. Blue Apron achieves this by supporting a more sustainable food system, setting the highest standards for ingredients, and building a community of home chefs. You choose chef-designed recipes. They deliver fresh, season, seasonally-inspired ingredients. And you can cook incredible meals in as little as 20 minutes. Every week, at least three recipes built with your busy schedule in mind where Blue Apron has done the meal prep for you. Prepared sauces, spices, and ingredients. Quick and easy recipe options with insanely delicious flavors. Blue Apron lets you choose from a, a range of recipe options. Whether you're looking for quick and easy meals or a full culinary cooking experience, Blue Apron is there, letting you choose from a range of recipe options. My wife and I cooked the hearty vegetable grain bowl with avocado and a creamy fig dressing. I was intrigued just by hearing the ingredients. And this is frike, which is an ancient Middle Eastern grain. It's basically young, young wheat seeds toasted. But it's combined with Brussels sprouts, toasted sweet potatoes, and apple and avocado. And with this fig spread, put together ourselves, buttermilk and Dijon mustard. Incredible, amazing flavor. Never would have dreamt of this in a million years. I've never ever seen this on any kind of menu. Fantastic, and we cooked it ourselves. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free at blueapron.com/murder. That's blueapron.com/murder to get your first three meals free. Blue Apron. A better way to cook now John we want to get to what Kathleen Zellner has put together in terms of what really happened with Bobby Dassey that day Stephen Avery and Teresa Hallback take us to the timeline that she creates through this and is described in Netflix but in more exacting detail in your book Wrecking Crew about what she believes happened and how?
1: Well you basically we, we put ourselves around two thirty ish or so, okay, Dan. And uh right. so it's two thirty. Kathleen or, um Teresa Hallbeck shows up um to perform a very, you know, routine, you know, photo assignment uh for auto trader that uh that pretty much would would take her in and out of the property. You know within about five minutes or so okay and uh so again according to zellner's uh um theory and what her investigations uncovered um steve avery goes outside and that's important to stress uh, avery's always maintained that uh, that he never that Teresa hallblock never went inside of his uh, trailer and and again just to remind listeners too it was pretty much taboo you know it was a, you know that uh that the auto trader photographers were not supposed to go inside of, you know, homes, you know, or trailers or apartments of people. That uh, so again, you know, that would seem to line up as far as, uh, you know, that uh, that that any transaction of money you know, took place outside, you know, in the yard. Um, so mm-hmm. let's just say that it happened that way, that, uh, that Avery pays her the money. She she got the photo assignment done within a couple of months or so. And, again, we know based on, uh, you know, Dassey's own statements that he's watching from the window, you know, kind of peering out the window no matter what. Okay, he's watching this take place and stuff like that, okay?
0: Mm-hmm. We have...
1: We have Teresa leaving then, so she pulls down, pulls back up uh, Avery Road, which again is probably about a quarter mile long. It's a, it's a it's a real it's a longer road than than you realize until you're out there. Um, but it would probably take her another minute or, or two to get from where she was taking the photographs to actually getting back to Highway 147. Okay, uh, it's a state state highway, 55 miles an hour, two lane road. Um, there's usually not that much traffic out there, actually, uh, believe it or not. Um, you would have her taking a left and basically going up the road about a mile or so, and then you would get to an intersection that's called County Highway Q. Um, and, uh, and and while this is going on, basically the belief is that Bobby Dassey got in his own vehicle, his black van, uh, uh, um, and uh and and followed her uh get you know to uh to, tr- to tr- chase her down and um the belief is that somewhere again not that far from the intersection i just described which is uh county q and uh state highway 147 not that far up the road would be a little half mile um two-lane road a very 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 seldom traveled road there's only about a dozen houses on there and it's woodlands on both sides of the road a very desolate area that's called Cust road, and the belief is that uh that Bobby Dassey perhaps had flagged down Teresa you know again it's middle of the day time it's around two forty five two forty five ish or so, and uh you know flagged her down and uh under the guise of uh you know asking her to photograph his vehicle uh for uh, for what's known again as we talked about earlier as a hustle shot and again hallback Teresa Hallback being. Familiar with him, you know, familiar with the Avery property and stuff like that. If if it had gone down, if things had happened that way, that would not have have, have set off any panic alarm, you know, or or, or left Teresa Halbach, you know, fearing, you know, that the end was was here and stuff like that. Because again, Bobby Dancy would have been a familiar face to her, and she would not have expected anything anything terrible to happen to her at this point in time okay Right. the belief is that so again you we now we're on cuss road or we're basically around cuss road and again one reason why that this theory seems to line up dan is that is zellner's uh, forensic experts you know have analyzed the you know the the phone the phone calls and and zellner's belief is that the very very last phone call that that came to teresa um the one that took place around 2:41 p.m would have uh, that that Phone call bounced off of a of a cell tower, which is commonly called the white law um Tower White law is a real small community um not that far from uh, from where we're talking about, but that tower is about thirteen to thirteen point one miles away from the actual Avery salvage yard property so again it it wouldn't it wouldn't make sense for the call to be bouncing off of there unless Hallbuck was in the same general area where that, where that call had, uh, you know, had taken place. Okay. The, uh, so we have, so we basically, we're putting them now on Cuss road. The belief is that Bobby basically suggested, or she, you know, she agreed to, you know, let's just go right up the road there because there, there really is a huge cul-de-sac, um, up the road on, on road there. It's a really wide area. I've spent some time out there this summer, took a lot of photographs and just kind of walked the area from my own experience. But, um, but so that area there, which also again leads into the very back, there's kind of a, I would call it, it's not really a secret and secret, secret entrance into Redance, but it's, but it's, it's a way that, uh, that, that, uh, that some of his trucks and also some of his, uh, friends, you know, people that go out there, it's, it's a back way into the redact quarry property. And it's also a, a back way into, he's got, or at the time he had three or four different, uh, deer, deer hunting or, yeah, deer, uh, deer trailers out there for people that uh, that were deer hunters. Uh, it's kind of a deer camp area. So, anyway, the belief is that uh, that Halbeck was lured out to this area there, and uh, you know, again, she's getting her photography camera ready. She's opening the very back of her Rav4. She opens the door, and the belief is that that that's at that point in time is when Bobby attacked her. Um, again. He may not have if he did the crime he may not have done this with the intention of a premeditated murder per se that this really was uh, possibly a sexual um rape uh it was a it was a you know violent uh, violent act but uh, but anyway nonetheless is that she's attacked she becomes unconscious you know knocked out incapacitated, and the belief is that uh that she eventually is later brought back to the uh to the property. To Bobby Dassey's garage, and uh, and it's and it's there where you know she either either was killed or uh, or or some of the uh, um, you know dismembering you know was going to take place and stuff like that.
0: You talk about a phone call that that stepfather newly new stepfather Scott Stadich, and this is Steve Every's sister's new man in her life, Scott. Padditch, he worked at a aluminum smelting foundry or aluminum foundry. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about that, but he got a call on October 31st and apparently, according to what investigators have found, is that he left the premise that day. Tell us more about what the phone call uh, indicated and also what was concluded from it.
1: Well, there was... uh the the situation with Todd, is a little uh um uh, some some it's still a little shrouded in mystery so to speak then Dan. The uh right. the phone call that he got I, I'm going off of memory here but I I'm pretty sure there was there was one that uh, that took place the following week where somebody called him and and, and, and this was the voice that was was in Kind of a panic mode and stuff like that. Uh, that was actually, I believe, the, the following week and stuff like that. Um, but uh, but on the day of the of the uh, actual uh, um, homicide of Teresa Halbach, Scott Tadich was a no-show. He didn't come to work that day. Uh, he was right. regularly Sorry, scheduled yeah. to work at the, yeah at the foundry, and uh, and uh, different versions were floated around. You know the office. I shouldn't say the office is a blue-collar, you know, facility, but just, uh, but back at the at, back at the foundry. And one version was that that Scott was supposedly going to make a trip. I believe to Green Bay to uh, to visit uh, to see his mother because she was going to be going through uh, uh, some back surgery that day. Um, so he's going around, uh, and after you know, shortly after the crime, had had happened, he was interviewed on a number of occasions by the police, um, and uh, different stories that uh, that came up as far as his own whereabouts that day, and uh, and and one of the things that that he he said, which is really a uh, kind of an unbelievable tale, was that uh, they he stuck with the version that he had made a trip to Green Bay to visit his mom, um, and then he claimed that he decided to come back back to uh, Mantua County and uh, to decide to go deer hunting. So, again, you know, he's supposed to be at work and uh, blows off work, and, uh, and he claims that he's going to go deer hunting. And he claims that, uh, that while he just happens to be driving back on 147, which, again, is the same general area, you know, where Halbeck, uh, you know, his last moments of life are, you know, are possibly uh, taking place, he's going to um, claim that, uh, that he happens to be driving uh, in the exact opposite direction Bobby Dassey, you know, and uh, and he's going to claim that uh, they both just happen to pass each other again, driving 55 miles an hour, not knowing, you know, that one or the, you know, that they're going to see each other. Um, but uh, and, and what's really odd about this whole this whole story, and I know it's going to go on a little tangent by 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 saying this, but I want to bring bring it all back to Bobby Dassey, too, is that when Bobby was first interviewed. Uh, um, of the case and about his own whereabouts, his behaviors on the on, on Teresa's last day of life, he brought up. He was the one that brought up the fact that uh, that uh, that he and Tadich uh, um, had supposedly passed each other on Highway 147. The one thing I noticed, I really picked up on this, is that when when the investigator or investigators, I should say, had asked him about this, um, he you know, to have an understanding of where this happened and uh and along those lines, I noticed that their statement that they put down was that he said that they should ask Scott Todd, that Scott would yeah. remember. And in my mind, again, from you know from years of doing this this this, this type of work, Dan, that was one thing that I kind of zeroed in on and, and really red flagged because this is again, this is just we're we're, we're talking less than a week after Halbeck had disappeared. We're not this is not going back 15 years earlier, saying you know what were you doing in you know 1987 or something like that. This is fresh. This is within you know that prior week, and he can't tell them. In fact, he's actually encouraging them and directing them to go out of their way to interview Tottage, which again in my mind, you know, raises a very strong likelihood that these two guys had cooked up a story and uh and, and basically, you know, had everything kind of put together as far as uh, you know, for, for each other because again, if if this really did happen, you know, why why is Bobby Dassey struggling to tell them, you know, where where he saw Got hot at, at the time that this is fresh in his mind at the time that this had really happened, and again the other thing it just i I take my dog for a walk usually three or four days a week here in Illinois, and ever since this case since that that topic. I've spent a lot of time studying. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a busy road not that far from my neighborhood, and the speed limit's 40 miles an hour out here, Dan. And, and I look out the car. I know a lot of people in this general area, in this community, and, and I can't, even, you know, standing outside on the, walking the dog on the sidewalk, I struggle to see who's inside those vehicles. Even every once in a while, have somebody beep at me or wave at me, and I can't, you know, see who that really is at that point oh, yeah. in time. So I just struggle with this whole idea that these two guys really saw each other, you know, going in the opposite directions like they did. Uh, it just uh, really seems to defy logic.
0: Now, Zellner goes farther than just saying that this is a case of, obviously ineptitude, uh, that this is a, a conspiracy involving certain players, and we don't have time to go through all of those, but people that watch the documentary know some of the names of Coburn and Link, and some of the people that were around when Avery was first convicted seem to be, as you write in a book, rewarded for their work and their loyalty, and then are in a position again to show their loyalty in terms of seems, gathering evidence against Avery. Um, You talked about uh, some of the things she's found. We could spend all day on the things that she refutes, like the no blood in in Avery's trailer, the entire theory of Kratz's prosecutorial theory about how things went down. But let's talk about what Zellner found and you found in terms of the bullet uh, and in terms of, the garage never being um uh, the Dassey garage never being searched and also the idea of the what you call a cover up in terms of the road kill in the Dassey garage tell us a little bit about that the bullet in the garage
1: yeah and well, the it, yeah and again the uh well, that's one of the amazing things too because if you think about it the police had control of the uh the Avery compound the 40 acre property you know, from uh, from Saturday, uh, November 5th of '05, through that Saturday, November 12th, and they had already spent two previous days before that actually making trips out to see Steve Avery, you know, and interview him, and then and then they came back on the on the fourth uh, Lincoln uh, Remiker ditch. They showed up that Friday morning, and Steve gave them permission to walk inside. So now we're really talking almost ten days and they also spent a lot of those those days going into the other trailers of of his brother Chuck and also going into the you know the house of uh of of Barb his sister and uh, and her boys as well so it really kind of defies logic that they they were checking some of these outbuildings they were they I know they were doing that on that first Saturday on November 5th but for whatever reason that um they they, they weren't curious or weren't looking around at the uh, at the garage immediately, the, the garage of uh, of the Dasseys, just you know, as part of their due diligence. Uh and um, and and what was in that garage? And they photographed this at the at the very end of the case when they were kind of closing up shop at the uh, at the property. But uh, but there was a dead deer that was hanging um, from the uh, from the rafters, so to speak. Actually, I shouldn't say rafters. It was it was hung up, but uh, but it was it was hung pretty high. And uh, but the thing was, is, again, that this was another one of the strange strange events of the case. That this wasn't a deer that. That Bobby had bagged you know out in the field, uh but this was a deer that uh that he had picked up on the side of the road and and he only picked this thing up the on the uh the fourth I believe I'm pretty sure it was on that friday um right, right. the the um yeah the uh, so again now you're talking four or five days well four yeah four full days after teresa had had been on the property, but by that point in time bobby dassey and pretty much everybody in wisconsin for that matter dan knew that teresa hallbuck was missing and they also knew that steve avery was being looked at as the prime suspect in the case because uh you had to, you had wisconsin television personalities and reporters showing up at uh at avery's property i, I believe on the uh on the fourth um and uh and and there was a there was there was an interview that that was done with him where he's kind of a little, I don't think he's teary-eyed, but it's just he's he 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 makes a statement along the lines of you know that uh, that he's fearing this is going to happen again to him and stuff like that. So everybody in the world that was paying attention to television that night, including if 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 if, if, if there was a. Alternative killer here. Um, they would they would know at this point in time that Steve Avery is being looked at as the prime suspect, but he hasn't been arrested at this point in time. So again, um, you have all these factors you know going on here. But uh, but again, if, if if you're somebody that uh, that may have been involved in the crime, and, and you know that Steve Avery is being looked at, well, one thing you're going to want to consider doing is to make take the heat off yourself. You don't want to draw any attention you know to yourself. And again, the, uh, this whole notion that that Bobby Dassey's is going to, you know, go, you know, start the engine for his for his vehicle, you know, for his uh, for his van, and then and then drive around and then go pick up find a dead deer carcass that he doesn't know who hit the dang thing, which also then you know raises the question: How the hell long had it been out on the road and stuff like that? Because again, as somebody who who hit uh, a deer and um, may of 2016 in Wisconsin and it destroyed my van but uh but again um, yeah. the, the the goofy notion that you're going to pick up a, a deer from somebody that you don't know who hit it and or how long that thing's been laying there on the side of the road and then and then bring that thing into your garage and you know and uh uh it just uh the whole thing again is is just very 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 suspicious and stuff like that but again it would be a perfect ruse so to speak i would say if you don't know if the police are going to eventually come back to the Avery Road and eventually start asking questions, you know, of you or your brothers or your mom or you know her boyfriend and stuff like that, uh, um, if if Teresa Halbach had been dismembered, you know, and her blood was uh, was uh, spattered throughout the garage, what would be a perfect cover-up? You know, aside from putting a rug on the ground there, and, again, you throw a rug on, you know, in the garage, that's going to look suspicious. But, again, hanging up a dead deer, you know, that's pretty much been uh, um, skinned, you know, and, and taken apart, that's going um, to uh, draw some um, attention away from you and stuff like that. The police would think that that's normal because that is normal. People do that. Thousands of people do that, you know, in, in, in a given week, you know, at that time of the year in November in Wisconsin
0: let's talk about the burn pit Zellner got a forensic fire expert to, with incredible experience um, tell us what he had said about the possibility of Teresa Holbach being burnt in Avery's burn pit and also the idea that they found out about locations three locations of bones in a gravel pit near customers
1: the um the burn pit's an interesting one and i have some familiarity too from actually having walked out there on the property and taken some closer photographs just in the last year or two with permission from the family because i myself wanted to get an understanding dan of you know how this could have happened and was it logical that uh that you could have uh you know a bonfire out there that uh that got this hot um and uh would have you know basically burned up a body under those circumstances. Again, early November, late October, you know, at a time that's usually in the 30s, you know, or 40s at nighttime and stuff like that right. too. Um, so, uh, but again, Zellner's, uh Zellner got a couple different experts. John Dehan was one of them, and John Dehan, right. I know, is uh, is regarded as one of the you know the foremost uh, experts, uh, you know, in the United States and and maybe even the world as far as he's actually done numerous um, examinations, numerous experiments. Let's call them um, dealing with cadavers to uh, to study cadavers under different heat um, uh, different intensities of, of heat and um, and the one thing that you normally need to have a body incinerate to you know to the to the heat that that uh, that, that uh, that's going to cause the body to to break down like that, but also um, you, you need an enclosed Setting, and, and usually a, um, a car or a car trunk or a steel drum barrel is the logical place that a, that, uh, that 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 would take place. And uh, and again, her experts have, have studied all the the property, studied the uh, the case and uh and, and 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 the other thing too this is important to stress uh for for people listening the the Avery's burn pit was 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 really close his his his, his garage which looks like you know, a 10 mile an hour wind would, uh, you know, would knock the thing over. Um, it's okay. just, uh, it's just a real rickety looking garage, but it must be sturdy because it's still standing. You know, 12, 13 years later, even though it looked that bad back then, but uh, but his garage is is just rickety. But his garage is right on top of this this burn pit, and not that far away from from that. Dan is actually there's a propane tank that's not that far away, and then right next to the propane tank is his red trailer so you have all these four things right next to each other generally speaking the burn pit in the backyard the detached red garage the propane tank and then the red trailer and the notion that that somehow that uh that uh, that avery you know was going to throw this 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 body into uh in, into the burn pit and uh and and have the body destroyed within a three hour period from like uh, eight to eleven p m or seven to ten whatever it was john dehan is 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 one hundred percent sure positive that the crime didn 't happen that way that 's not saying who the killer is, but it 's just saying that the fact the factual allegations or the foundation that was made at the time of the trial in two thousand and seven um, it, the crime, no matter what, did not happen the way that it was portrayed at the 2007 trial. And again, this is this isn't just you know some some armchair quarterback here or, or somebody on the internet, uh, you know that's 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 on Reddit. This is John Dehan, who's one of the best experts, fire experts in 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 the country, that's making these conclusions and is willing to sign his name to a sworn affidavit on this topic, Dan.
0: Along with that, they examined the bone, uh, pardon me, the bullet, and uh, found that there was no bone. Uh, Tell us what the significance of finding no bone attached to that bullet, and what did they find attached to that bullet, which was very interesting and explainable.
1: Well, you had, uh, again, Zahner went out and and tracked down another one of the country's best experts, ballistics experts, uh, a gentleman uh, in uh, Arizona uh luke uh Luke Haig is his name and uh and again, they did numerous um exam fire you know um ballistics expert, ball- ballistics examinations as far as firing um uh, bullets through uh through what was bovine um because again if if Teresa Hubbuck was shot in the manner that it was described it was portrayed at the time of the trial the belief is that there always is and and would be some type of bone you know from the skull that would have um even just tiny fractions sure. you know of, of yeah. but there should be there there would be there's there's an absolute certainty that that would have been on on one of these bullet fragments if indeed the bullet fragment did pass through her skull okay and uh, and again they uh, they did these experiments and uh, and then they also analyzed a different forensic expert was able to uh, analyze the the bullet um, and that was Chris Polentik I believe he's with MicroTrace which again is one of the the country's uh, um, top uh, experts uh, um, dealing with trace evidence just has unbelievable microscopes there and uh, was able to put these put this bullet. Under their special specialized microscope, and they were able to determine that there's some type of wood some type of wood particle dan that's uh, that was located on this this bullet, and I believe also some type of red paint uh, but uh, but again the uh, the expert was convinced as well again absence of of any type of skull fragment and the look and the finding of these uh these these wood and or you know paint chips. The, the belief is that, that uh, again, going back out to the Avery property, that this bullet or, or bullet fragments that were that were recovered from the garage were probably bullets that had just been fired out there uh, by uh, by a fellow that actually had owned the, the trailer, um, a guy named Raleigh Johnson, who had lived in the trailer before Steve Avery got out of prison in 2003. But Raleigh was notorious uh, I shouldn't say notorious, but he was just fond of, uh, of of you know firing his you know firing his uh his his guns at just different environments and rabbits and squirrels and just other you know animals that were running around out there and stuff like that so it wasn't it was not uncommon for the Averys to be firing you know shooting at uh you know different animals and stuff like that, and the belief is that uh is that one of these bullets that was uh that was just lodged um Inside of the the red garage, the garage that eventually Stephen Avery inherited when he got out of prison, moved into the red trailer that the police had basically just plucked one of these bullets out of that garage and then declared that that bullet was was going to be uh one of the bullets that uh that that somehow had uh was used to to murder to shoot teresa and again it's one of those other unbelievable i think forensic uh you know, Herculean feats that Zellner and her her experts have been able to really uh, illustrate. You know, for the court to you know kind of again take apart uh, some of these key pieces of evidence that uh, that you know ten, twelve years ago nobody was even really given serious consideration to the possibility that these were phony or you know ginned up pieces of evidence. Dan.
0: Yes, she cites a bunch in in her. Conviction appeal, post-conviction appeal, October third, two thousand seventeen, in front of Judge Sudkowitz, She outlined a bunch of Brady violations. And number one was a CD of a of, of couple named Zipperers that we didn't mention, but at least um, noting that Teresa Halbach was headed to another appointment, and that the Averys weren't the Stephen Avery or the Averys were not the last appointment. That was suppressed, and now that, that CD is gone. The second thing was very interesting was Teresa's fuel tank, the consumption was never analyzed. And she says that would be and that's because they didn't want to have any disprove, uh, di- anything disproven in terms of the mileage and what it revealed in terms of uh, where she might have went in that vehicle, and it wasn't supporting their theory. They also she also talked about the highly questionable flyover that was conducted November third that did not find the vehicle. Um and she has assertions and contentions regarding that as an intentional um miss in that flyover. And then number four, the the affidavit from the quarry owner um that we mentioned that he talked about that he said that the district, uh, the Department of Justice had told him that the RAB was driven through that, that property from the Redant property itself. Tell us what Judge Sowetski, um, what were her decision was October third,
1: 2017, and why. Well, I was going to say it's, there's really not a whole lot to, to, to say because she really didn't, give much detail. Uh, in fact, I'm going off of memory here, Dan, but I think that her total ruling was only about six pages, seven pages tops. Uh, and so the long and short of it is just that she didn't uh, um, she didn't uh, agree with Zellner's uh, uh, petition or her arguments and that, that she didn't find uh, anything that uh, that convinced her otherwise as far as that these were uh, that these four pieces of evidence that uh, that the prosecution had uh, intentionally withheld from uh, the original trial lawyers Jerry Jerry Buting and, and Dean strang and uh, it just uh, like I said uh, for for a case where Zellner had originally filed you know about twelve hundred pages of uh, of uh, filings asking for uh, um, permission to do Scientific testing on different items of evidence back in August of 2016, to her eventual fi- filings in 2017, you know, where she got into more detail about, uh, you know, about the uh, these Brady violations that she had uncovered, um, the the opinion that was rendered by by Judge Sekowitz was just really. You know, shallow and it really didn't offer much uh, detail as far as why she came up with these conclusions uh, and you compare that to the you know the federal judge the one that uh, that originally had ordered Bobby da- I'm sorry Brendan Dassey uh, out of prison you know in 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 August of uh, two thousand and sixteen and and that judge delphin 's ruling was was around 90, 90, 90 or some ninety ninety pages or so so this uh right. again just uh regardless of you know what you believe about the case uh, uh Suckowitz's opinion in my opinion just basically sent the message that this is somebody that really didn 't want anything to do with this case she really wasn 't going to roll up roll up her sleeves and really analyze the evidence and even have a you know, st- study this case, you know, like like we're studying this case, Dan, and stuff like that. Uh, in fact, and I know this is a very small detail, but I put it in the book just to stress, you know, you know, how, how, how she really wasn't in touch with this case, but she actually, in a written ruling that, that again, it's a legal opinion, you would think that she would get the names of people writing the case. And, 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 yeah. and at the end of her opinion, she 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 makes a reference to Stephen Avery's nephew, the one that's convicted in this case, the one that uh, you know whose conviction uh, had been overturned uh, by the federal judge, and she refers to him as Brandon B R A N D um, O N, which again is get like getting started calling me you know Joe or something like that or Jim, and I'm John, so it's just uh, yeah. again it just that sent me a message that uh, that if she's if she's that lazy. Or sloppy, you know about not even you know knowing the proper names, you know when she's being punctual when she's actually writing this down and then looking over her work before she you know files this thing with the court for the whole world and all the lawyers to read that that she's also somebody that was just kind of a flyby that really probably doesn't know the case and really hasn't dissected the case and that's just a disservice for the whole you know state of Wisconsin and and for everybody that's interested in justice regardless of whether or not uh, you know who who you believe are the killers you know or not and stuff like that this is just somebody that really was uh, just phoning it in on this case and it's just it's just pathetic if you ask me so.
0: Despite that uh, you said that Zellner was positive and upbeat Um, tell us what she assured you John um, and why would she be upbeat? Tell us about that.
1: Well, I mean, one thing is that she's still, I mean, as we're probably having this conversation right now uh, for our listeners, I'm sure she's probably back at uh, either at her office or at home, or, she, I mean, she's constantly thinking about this case, and she's still doing right. analysis. Uh, she's still working on this case, uh, you know, as we speak. So, uh, so um, in fact, actually, Zellner usually has a lot more success on the appellate level than she does back at the at the circuit court, the district court level and stuff like that because of the simple reason is that a lot of these judges on the lower level, you know, don't want to become involved, you know, or don't want to ruffle feathers or um, mm-hmm. just really um, just aren't, aren't looking at the case properly. So uh, uh, Zellner oftentimes has her best success at the appellate level when there's, I would say, you know, the cream rises to the top. So oftentimes the, the state you know, the, the appellate judges or the uh, the Supreme Court judges in a different state, they're a lot more experienced and uh and really uh, um are in a more shall we say neutral uh, position where they're not going to be worried about local politics or you know bumping into the prosecutor or different people, the sheriff's deputies, you know, at the local grocery store or Walmart, like you know, Judge chuckwitz might be. Um, so again, Zelda has had a lot more success on these appeals, you know, at the appellate level, and um, and I just think that uh, um, it's just one of the things that she's she's basing it on her own experience that she's been there before. And uh, and she believes, I know she she believes this, Dan, that if she can convince a court to grant her an opportunity to put on evidence, you know, not even to the point of, of, of a new trial, but just letting her put on, you know, what's called an evidentiary hearing, um, right. that, that she believes that, that she'll be successful at that level, and that that'll ultimately cause the prosecution's case against Stephen Avery, you know, to collapse to the point where the prosecution will not want to even retry the case if, you know, if she is successful at that evidentiary hearing and, and a new trial is granted. So again, she's just a very tenacious individual. That she, uh, she's, yeah. you know, she's, she, she becomes. Um, even more successful through some of the defeats, you know, and uh, losses that she, uh, she's had over the years and stuff like that. And, and again, it's, uh, she's just very upbeat and, and positive about uh, Avery because she believes in her case. She knows that, that uh, all these pieces of evidence that she's been studying and she has the experts to back her up on, um, you know, really, really uh, makes things look real good for Steve Avery at this point in time.
0: We also didn't go into some of the, the evidence that she was able to get from the new experts that she brought on board, but some of the more compelling evidence is, and, and also offers an explanation that the confounded Strang and um, Buting at the original Avery trial, and that was uh, concerning the theory that they put forward that the blood that was planted in the, RA, the RAV for was from uh, a sample that turned out to be uh, not the source of that DNA. So she goes and does the investigation in this, and you chronicle all of it, where she gets the blood spatter experts. They do the experiments. It's shown in the documentary as well. It's gone into more detail in your book about exactly what they found and how they found that. So she has done an exhaustive job with her investigative team, and congratulations, John, you have done the same with this book really explaining the case uh, for Kathleen Zenner uh, to be able to exonerate Stephen Avery some at some point. And she has said, to in, you write in the book, she said to her followers, maybe 500,000 on her Twitter account, to hang in there because she believes he's innocent and that she will prevail. Isn't that correct?
1: Yes it is, yeah. And uh and, and again it's one of the things that uh that uh tomorrow may be the day somebody else will come forward, a witness will come forward, uh, or it could be a week from now. So it's, uh, it's one of those things that she's not, she hasn't stopped doing her investigation. You know, and she's even just in the last month or so, Dan, uh, um, gone back into the Dassey garage, if I'm not mistaken, and, uh, and yeah. taken some samples. And uh, is still, again, she's doing the work that the investigators didn't do back in 2005. And wouldn't that be something? You know, if lo and behold that that analysis that she's doing right now on the you know on the on the garage floor would really turn out uh, something like um, something like Teresa Halbach's blood on the ground. So we'll see. We'll see.
0: Absolutely. I, I, I'm sure that um, I'm certainly convinced that Kathleen Zellner is the person to be able to free Stephen Avery, and I am even more convinced of everything that I've read and. We talked about there are, are people that believe that certainly Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey are absolutely, unequivocally guilty. Uh, but this really, really opens your mind to the, the good possibility of a conspiracy by judicious of, uh, judicial officials to frame Stephen Avery once again. That's been incredible. I want to thank you very much, uh, John Ferrick, for coming on and talking about Wrecking Crew, demolishing the case against Stephen Avery. I know this is a Wild Blue Press release. Tell us how they might find out about your other work that's been featured on this show and uh, find out about this book.
1: Yeah, I was going to say uh, the uh, um, opportunities out there for people, uh, oftentimes just go to wildbluepress.com, and uh, and again, three of my other books that I published with Wild Blue Press uh, are available there, including my 2016 book, uh, Failure, of uh, Justice, which chronicles the largest wrongful conviction case in the United States' in history. Six people uh, that were wrongfully condemned in, in the state of Nebraska for a crime they didn't commit. Uh, um, the other opportunity is just, uh, just go to Amazon. You could pretty much find all five of my true crime books uh, on Amazon as well. And again, oftentimes I've written about... Uh, wrongful conviction cases. I've studied a lot of these cases and uh, just really um, just really taken an interest in this type of work. So, again, uh, Amazon or Wild Blue Press are probably the two best places to go.
0: Well, thank you very much, uh, John. It's been a pleasure, a great pleasure. Thank you very much, and congratulations on Wrecking Crew, Demolishing the Case Against Stephen Avery, An incredible work. Thank you very much, John. Hope to speak to you again soon. You have a great evening. Good night.
1: You too. Thank you very much again, Dan, for the opportunity. Have a great night.
0: Thank you. Good night.
1: The constant energy, the tight turns and bustle of the city. Some are just happy to survive it others were destined to conquer it the lexus ux and ux f sport crossovers with a 33 mpg combined estimate and the most advanced standard safety system in its class experience amazing at your lexus dealer click
0: the banner to discover more 2020 ux versus 2019 and 2020 competitors information from manufacturers websites as of 8 13 2019 2020 lexus ux 200 epa 29 city 37 highway 33 combined mpg estimates actual mileage will vary